I don't often watch the X Factor, but what happens on the X Factor is people are trying to create their own reality and they, they believe they can. Of course, sometimes they may not. Well, sometimes there's a bit of a problem with their perception of reality once again. What's interesting, though, is that this is not the way the Christian person thinks about reality. We don't believe that we are the authors of our own lives. In fact, what we believe is that God is the author of life. God is the author of reality. God is the author of the way things are shaped. And our losing touch with reality actually comes about because we lose touch with God. We don't actually understand who God is. And the further we move away from who God is, the further we lose touch with reality. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at a book called Amos. It's written by an 8th century prophet, and he's been speaking to us and saying to the people of Judah and Israel, you better check what you think reality is. Because your perception of reality is wrong. And what's worse is not only wrong, you are under the judgment of God. You are accountable to him for the way you behave and for what you've been doing to other people. You are accountable. Make sure you understand the reality that you think you're in. Now, of course, Amos has a quite a difficult job. He's just a sheep herder and uh, maybe a middle-class sheep herder, but he's moving from a place called in Tekoa called in Judah, and he's going to speak to people in Israel. You can see it there on that rather poor map. He's moving from one part of the land to the other, and this other part of the land is actually hostile to him. And some of the things he says are to people who are in power and who are in authority. And we'll see that today. Because today what we're going to do is look at chapters 3 to 6 through the lens of chapter 4. So we're going to spend most of our time in chapter 4, but we're going to see what Amos has to say about people's perception of reality. And he's going to confront them with the brutal facts of reality. What the reality is, and here are some brutal facts. He's going to describe their behaviour and tell them that they're under God's judgment. And then he's going to say, the only thing that you can do to survive, the only thing that you can do to, do to survive in chapter 5 is seek me and live. Seek God and live. That's the only option you have if you're going to face the brutal facts of your reality. The chapters are split up like this. The Lord roars from Zion. That's the opening verses in Amos. And in Amos chapter 3, chapter 4 and chapter 5, they begin with these words. Hear this word. Now, it's not kind of a, oh, yeah, if you'd like to hear this word, that'd be a good thing. No, this is meant to impress upon you that there is a lion roaring. You better run fast because here is the word. And you need to hear this word. It's emphatic. 
You need to hear this word. Well, what is this word? Well, as I said before, we're going to look at chapter 4, so you might like to t- turn that up in your Bibles, chapter, Amos chapter 4, and we're going to hear some of the things he say, says, and some of the things he says are quite confronting. Can I warn you? They were confronting for the people then, they will be confronting for us as well now. Listen to what he says. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. Now, Amos could not be more offensive at this point. Bashan on Mount Samaria, that's a picture of it just there. It's a very lush part of Israel. If you've ever been to the Golan Heights as I have, it's in that area, and you'll discover that Israel is very lush at that point. It's not desert. There's water, and there's vineyards, and there's groves of oranges. It's a beautiful place, and it was a place even back then which was great for herding cows. And the cows were fat and rich. And Amos, can you believe, is comparing the women of the day, the women of high society of the day, to fat cows. Now that is just appalling. But why is he describing them in this way? Why is he so angry and condemning of them? Well, their view of reality was one of entitlement. They saw that they could crush the poor and needy and say to their husbands, bring us some drinks. Now that tells us a little bit about these women. First of all, it says that they had nothing much to do around the house because they were just sitting there having their drinks. So it tells us that they weren't working, they weren't involved in household chores, they were perhaps just sitting around enjoying life at the expense of other people. It also tells us something about their husbands. Clearly their husbands also had the time not to be at work and to be there serving the drinks. So you can see these people there living their lives of luxury. And Amos insults them. And he insults them because he points out that the reason they're living their lives of luxury is because they're oppressing the poor and crushing the needy. The reason they're able to live the way they do is because of their oppression of others. And Amos is saying, your reality is about to change. God is going to bring judgment on you. You think that's the way the world should work? No, that's not reality. You will be accountable for the way that you crush the poor and the needy. Of course, this is not the only spot in Amos where we see this. We see in Amos chapter 5, you trample on the poor, and this is speaking more broadly, not just including the women at this point. You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. 
You oppress the righteous and take bribes and you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. In this particular society, which we know as being fairly middle class, it appears that the people who were richest in the society were doing well because of the way they were treating others. And Amos is saying, you are accountable for your behaviour. Now what I think is interesting here is a pattern that often takes place in people's lives. It's often possible to become wealthy and to become hard-hearted at the same time. Now, I'm not suggesting it happens all the time. I know many very generous and kind people who are wealthy. But there is an ability in our hearts, I think, as we increase in our wealth, to become kind of hard-hearted towards those around us. To say, well, their poorness is of their own making. Yes, but if I didn't buy all these things, they wouldn't have a job. That kind of thinking that helps us feel more and more comfortable as we become wealthier and wealthier. That kind of thinking that says to our asylum seekers, we've got no room for you, even though we are a country rich beyond compare. Our lives are full of luxury. And Amos is saying here, that is not reality. You will be held accountable for the way that you live and for the way that you live as you deprive the poor of justice and mercy. Of course, this is not only an Old Testament problem. Um, It's a problem throughout the Bible. And we see in James, uh, we heard this morning that reading from James chapter 2, that expression of people being involved in faith but not really expressing it in their deeds. Later on in James chapter 5, we listen to these harsh words which could actually in some ways reflect uh, what Amos is saying here. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. God's view of reality is that we should be sharing the resources of this earth. Not that we should be living lives of luxury and self-indulgence at the expense of others. Well, what did we say the solution was? Well, the solution starts with, in chapter 5 of Amos, seek the Lord and live. Seek the Lord and live. Well, what does that look like? How do we go about that? Well, this morning we haven't got time to go into all the practical details of that, but I guess one way we could come to look at it is what is... Oh, well, that didn't help. What is said... I'm just going to have to stop and fix that up.
One way of thinking about that is to look at what Paul says um, in 1 Timothy chapter 6. As he commands those who are rich. Notice it's okay to be rich here, but there's a certain command that comes with being rich. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to be hard-hearted, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And the key is there, isn't it? If we're going to seek God first in our wealth, in our prosperity, we're going to say, actually, everything I have is not mine. Everything I have is richly provided to me by God. I just don't give him part of my wealth. All of my wealth is his in the first place. It's not mine, it's his. He richly provided. And we are called, therefore, to be generous with what he has so richly provided for each one of them. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Because after all, it's not our own. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life, that is truly reality, that is the real way of looking at life. Amos says it like it is and then demands that we seek God first. But it's not only in this area of wealth and the way that we live it's also in the way that we worship. If you thought what Amos said was insulting in his first verses, these next verses are also very insulting. In fact, they're so sarcastic. I think they're one of the most sarcastic parts of the Bible. Listen to what the Lord roars from Zion through the words of Amos. Here are the brutal facts. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin some more. What? God is advocating that these people go off to Gilgal and off to Bethel, centers of worship, to sin some more? What happened at these places? Well, these places were centers of, of worship for Israel. They're the kinds of places where people would go up to them. In fact, the words are written in such a way that kind of remind us of the Psalms and remind us of people going up to sing the praises of God in the temple. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord, they would have sung. Let us shout for the rock of our salvation as they entered into the temple courts. Let us come before him with thanksgiving. What? Is this what they were doing? Yeah. They were coming to worship together. They were coming to worship together God. Look at how zealous they were. Bring your sacrifices every morning. The sacrifices referred to there are actually sacrifices you need to only make every year. And they're bringing them every morning. They're bringing their tithes every three years. In fact, the real word there is every three days. They're so zealous for what they're doing. 
They burn leavened bread and make thank offerings. They brag about free will offerings and boast about them. You Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the Lord God. Said full of sarcasm. In the next chapter, God makes clear through the words of Amos what he actually means. In chapter 5, we read these words. I hate and despise your religious feast. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. Amos is saying it's quite possible to come and worship God, to sing his praises, to say liturgy together, to gather, to gather around the Lord's table, to preach, to listen to a sermon, and for none of it to be pleasing to God. For worse than that, for it to be something which God hates. We kind of assume that if we turn up for church, God must love us because we've done the right thing by him. And if we do certain things, he'll love us even more. But that's not what this passage is telling us. It's telling us it's possible to turn up to church and for God to actually hate the fact that you turn up for church. Does, does, does that sound remarkable? I want you to be here, by the way. I don't, I'm not trying to scare you away here at this point. Amos is trying to confront us with reality. And the reality is that what takes place often in religious festivals, in our services, is things that we love to do. You love to do. You see the focus here? As people came to worship at these two centres, they said, we're coming because we love to do these things. This is all about us. It's all about what we like, what we want, the way we want things done. It's about us. And we'll worship God in the process. Now, those are shocking words, aren't they? And, of course, no church in the modern era ever faces this problem. Well, that's not true, is it? I think in my own heart and in every church I've been in, we've struggled with this issue. Coming to church not just because I want to be there or I like it or it suits me. But in fact, coming together to worship God because he calls me to. Because it's about him and not about me. It's about focusing on him and doing what he asks. David Peterson in his... Uh, interesting book that um, looks at this particular issue, uh, talks about what worship is as he surveys the whole Bible. And he says, worship is engaging with God on the terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. Coming together 
in church is about engaging with God in terms that he proposes, in ways that he makes possible. Now, of course, in Jesus' day, Jesus was also concerned about those who might come and gather together to worship God for their own needs. And he spoke frequently of the leaders of the Jewish people at the time who were leading people astray in hypocrisy in the way they came to worship. And on one particular occasion in Matthew chapter 5, he points to this hypocrisy when he says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. His point, of course, is Amos's point. You are doing what you love to do, but in fact, it's actually not the worship of the Most High God. It is something completely separate. It's just about you. So how is it that we are to deal with this situation? How is it that we are to seek God and live? Well, it's interesting, just after that prayer, just after that observation Jesus makes about the hypocrites and about the person praying, he invites them to say a prayer, a prayer which focuses on God, that puts worship in the right place that changes the reality of the worshippers, even as they pray it. I invite you to say it with me this morning. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Seek God first. Seek him in all that you do. Well, Amos is not finished in this chapter with what the Lord has to say, roaring from Zion. He's once again going to confront the people of Israel with some brutal facts, including that God will continue to judge them. And he will say to them, Seek me and live. What is it this time he wants to confront the people of God with? Well, the third note he wants to bring to them is about their history. I don't know whether you've had the opportunity to stop and think about how your life has unfolded. Uh, Some people have had longer lives and so they've been able to look back over many more years. But I guess all of us at some time pause and think about how our lives might have unfolded. About the great things, about the things that we can celebrate and things that we love, but also about the things that kind of have been challenging, the things that have been difficult, the highs, the lows. And as you look back, what kind of reality do you see? Sometimes things are revealed to you that you you didn't quite expect, that as you, you get a bit of distance, you can see that actually your perception of reality at the time was, was not quite correct. There were other things going on. And it's only over time that you've seen what's taking place. Well, in some senses, Amos does the same thing with the people of Israel. He asks them to think about and remember their history, and he shows them 
that behind the scenes, even in the disasters, God has been active. God has been doing things and calling them to himself. But each time, at each opportunity, they have failed to respond. God has used the difficulties in their lives to say, trust me, and they've kept saying, no, we don't want to. Come with me and we'll see. In verses 6, 7, 8, 10 and 11, we read these words at the beginning of these verses. I gave you empty stomachs in every city. I also withheld rain from you. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards. I sent plagues amongst you. I overthrew some of you. Every time he says that and describes that, he finishes it off with these words. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Quite astoundingly, Amos is saying at this point that those things have come into your life into the life of you as Israel, to turn you back towards me. But at each point, you have not returned back to me. You have turned your face away. And as you've turned your face away, you've continued to lose touch with reality. You've continued to lose touch with God and his purposes for you. You've missed what God intended. You've not understood his calling out to you time and time and time again. And I wonder if that's not true of sometimes of our own lives as well. A calamity comes upon us. And rather than driving us closer to God, it actually drives us away. Rather than being an opportunity for further trust, for a further deepening of our faith, we decide, actually, we ignore God. We won't return to him. And yet the plea here is from Amos, please return to me. Seek my face. Seek God and live. As Amos brings the chapter to a close... He says these words. Therefore, this is what I want you to do, Israel. And because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Of course, that is the voice of judgment as Israel has continued to not follow God, has continued to ignore the signs and continued to ignore his call. God says, I will judge you. Prepare to meet your God. And what kind of God is that? It's the God who forms the mountain. The God who creates reality. The God who creates the wind. The God who reveals his thoughts to mankind. The God who brings judgment, turning the dawn to darkness. The God who treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord God Almighty is his name. And as we listen to these words today, we can only but reflect on the one who has been revealed. The one who is Jesus. And that we too will stand before him. That we too need to prepare to meet our God. 
to meet Jesus who forms the mountains, who creates the winds and directs them, who reveals his thoughts in his words to mankind, who actually has turned the darkness into light, but who's now Lord over all. If we don't want to face God's judgment, we need to come to Jesus, to turn, to repent, to recognise what he has done for us and how he has rescued us from God's judgment and how he offers us so freely the freedom to delight in who he is, to understand and revel in his grace, to come to him as people who truly understand what it is to hold on to the wealth he's given us who come to him as truly people who understand what it is to worship him in spirit and in truth, who come to him and recognise how God has been at, at, at acting in our lives through the good times and the bad. This morning I invite you, return to him, seek his face. Face the brutal reality of life and turn to God. Amen.